Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Natter, just talking to teachers. Today in the Teacher Development Trust segment of Nailers Natter, we'll be talking about planning professional development beyond lockdown. And I have Maria here today to talk about how schools should be approaching CPD for the next academic year. Hi Michelle. So big question and indeed thinking about how schools should be approaching CPD for the next academic year feels like it's a lot more difficult to answer than normal in light of lockdown and return to school and everything that's happened in COVID. In a normal year, we would encourage that no school goes down a one-size-fits-all route or tries to adopt a model from elsewhere without applying this or tailoring it to their context. But I think one of the things that's really struck me and the whole team at the Teacher Development Trust is just how different and unique every leader and school's experience has looked throughout all this. And so upon return to school, there's going to be so many teachers and leaders thinking about how to adapt to the various experiences that their students have had over this time and make sure that learning can continue and build on that. And this is no exception to teachers. We've got to approach CPD in the same way. So there's just such a range of experiences across the board. There have been some teachers who feel like they've had loads more time to engage with professional development opportunities such as webinars and um, reading and all the stuff that within the busy school day they don't often have the time to fit in but then on the other hand there are leaders who have been on the front line thinking about bubbles and uh, providing food vouchers and making sure that schools have internet connection and then there, there are those teachers who are at home and they might be homeschooling or caring for children so can't actually engage with CPD or don't have the headspace for it when they're just juggling so many new priorities. So I think as a leader or someone that is leading professional development upon return to school, the first step is actually just being aware that everyone's experience during this time will look so different. And so always starting with needs. And this is really a principle that applies to all CPD. But rather than starting with what you want to cover and the content there, actually approaching your staff, having that conversation, um, making sure there's the opportunity for them to feedback what they feel would support their learning and starting from there. I know, for instance, in some contexts, leaders were slightly worried at one point that their teachers might feel a bit deprofessionalized or a bit worried about going back into the classroom after such a long time. So if that's the case, then you might be covering different things in CPD with whole staff or with certain groups of staff to what you might have planned otherwise. I think I would also recommend once you have a bit of an idea of what staff feel like they think they need individually, what teams might also need, and then how this relates to the whole school development priorities, making sure that there's this emphasis of moving from learning to development. So. For those who have been engaging with you know, online courses during lockdown, getting really enthusiastic about new content and new ideas, that's great. But how are you as a leader going to ensure that that's applied in school? And that's where it becomes quite difficult. 
because it's about harnessing that enthusiasm and sustaining it and so you could have some key champions who are involved in just continuing that throughout the school and maybe organizing mini teach meets or championing research but also allowing for opportunities to apply new strategies that people have learned about during lockdown. So that could look like things like collaborative inquiry or teacher research projects or peer coaching and things like that. But there's lots of resources, say, through the Teacher Development Trust or Chartered College or even your trust or teaching school that might be able to support with that. And then I think the last thing to think about is moving CPD to an online space where possible and how we can learn from the very new and sudden uh, migration of content online during this time and harness some of that familiarity that colleagues will now have. So in summary, start with needs. It's so important. Diagnosis is really key if you're going to move on professional learning. Think about the ways in which your in-school culture is supporting professional learning, but don't feel that there is pressure to do anything. I think it's really important that while CPD is important and improving teaching and learning, particularly at this time, CPD should never be burdensome or a bolt-on. So it's not about pressurising colleagues to engage with content or new learning that they might not feel like they have the headspace to do. It's about offering it there and being there as a supportive leader. And finally, I think connecting with other leaders is so important as well. So uh, Phil often talks about this on Naila's Natter and through his podcast, he brings together a variety of voices from across the sector. We can do this through the TDT network as well. We'd really encourage checking that out if, if you're keen to be in contact with other schools who do this really well. Thank you for that, Maria. And listeners, as Maria just mentioned, if you do have any questions for Teacher Development Trust or would like to know how we can support you with any of these areas and planning for 2020-2021, you can contact us via tdtrust.org. Okay, so hello, Claire, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello. Nice to, nice to meet you and speak with you. Thank you. So uh, we're going to get straight in, if we may, to our gentle introductory question, because we've got so much to talk about today. So we're going to be focusing on mainly the Research Head Guide to the Curriculum, which is uh, the new book from John Cat, which you have edited. Um, but before we do that, let's just give listeners a little potted history of your career to this point, your 30 years of primary school teaching and 22 years of headship. Ah. That's right. So, yeah, I started teaching in 1989, the same year as the National Curriculum came out in England. And uh, then I taught, I taught in the London borough of Tower Hamlets, and I've taught in a couple of schools there. And after a few years in, in rather strange circumstances, I sort of got thrown into acting headship. Um, and then I was at that school, St. Matthias School in Tower Hamlets, for uh, 22 years as the head teacher. Uh, and then last year, in the, the summer of last year, I, I left uh, science and moved over to the island of Guernsey. And I now work for the states of Guernsey 
um, in the education department, and I'm the head of curriculum and standards there. So, of course, primary and secondary and even um, FE as well. Fantastic. So um, I've got to start with a very big question, Claire. So apologies for this. But as we open up the, the research <coughs> guide to the curriculum and we kind of start off with what might seem an obvious question, um, but what do you mean by the curriculum? Well, it's, it's, it's a good question because, of course, it can be used to mean lots of different stuff. It can be used, some people use it to mean, you know, absolutely everything that happens in schools and we talk about the hidden curriculum and all sorts of things like that. However, in the book that I wrote and what I talk about when I talk about the curriculum, I really mean the stuff that happens in lessons. That stuff, the stuff that we teach. So, you know, it's perfectly valid to talk about uh, other things that we do. Or, um, and sometimes curriculum is used like that, the wider curriculum or the classic curriculum or whatever. But I'm really meaning it as the stuff that we teach in lessons, the, the, the body of knowledge and skills that we provide. And, of course, the, the um, roots of the word come from to run, the course that you run. Um, so the material, the content that you want to pass on to the children and young people, that, that's what I mean by it, which you know, doesn't mean that you can't use it in a different sense, but when I talk about it, that's what I'm talking about. And in this book, you have got um, nine contributors, obviously, along with yourself, and the series is edited, obviously, by, by Tom Bennett. Yeah. So how did you go about yeah. choosing the nine authors? And I must just say, I was looking through the book, and I was very fortunate that we've had about four of them, at least, if not more, as guests on the show previously. So uh, I'll be fascinated oh, to pick your brains to talk about some of those. But how did you go about choosing the, the nine authors? Well, like I've, I've never edited a book before, so I was a bit like, oh, I want to get some of the really famous people for talking about curriculum. So I was a bit like, oh, well, they say yes, but I was delighted that they did. So I obviously wanted Christine Council because she's like the high priestess of curriculum, if you like. You know, she just, her thinking is just incredible. Um, it's so good uh, and so, so groundbreaking. So I was delighted when she asked. And then, I mean, most of her working is feeding off of Professor Michael Young's work, or certainly carrying on from that. So I thought, well, I wonder if his, and I was really like, I mean, I knew Christine a bit, I've met her, no, um, actually I have met Michael Young, we were on the platform talking about something once, so, you know, briefly, but I don't know him at all, so I was a bit nervous about approaching him, but he was delighted to write, so that was great. So those are two, like, my big sort of heavyweight, heavyweight, um, writers about the curriculum anyway. Um, and then the other people were people that um, I knew and I'd heard speak uh, on different uh, aspects of the curriculum. I obviously wanted some, oh, Doug Lamov, sorry, I should, sorry, the, the third person was Doug, Doug Lamov, who I, I don't know, obviously I know of his work. And so I asked him and he said, yes, but could Emily Badillo join in too? So that was fine. She'd done more beyond the groundwork, so that was still like a done. So those were those three big names, as it were, and then the others were people that I just that I knew, um, and I'd heard speak. So uh, Ruth Ashby, secondary school teacher. Yes, as I said, I wanted a, you know, a diverse mix of, of, of across the phases. So Ruth writes the most fantastic blogs, absolutely fantastic. Really, really helped me develop my understanding of 
of particularly disciplinary knowledge. Um, so I really wanted her to be uh, to, to write. I was just a secondary school teacher, so that that was good. Um, and then I've got to go through my book now and remember everybody who comes next. The next one is Aurora, isn't it? Aurora. And she's, uh, I read her, I, I don't know about Aurora, but she, I read a piece that she put, a uh, blog she put out and actually um, Parents and Teachers for Excellence re-blogged it. And that, why I thought her piece was really interesting is because uh, people who espouse the curriculum and particularly saying it should be knowledge rich, that sometimes thought to be a very right-wing thing. Now, it's not at all. But Aurora Reed is going from really a sort of left-wing perspective on it, very much critical theory and completely dismantling the idea that it's, it's some sort of elitist uh, perspective. So I thought that was an important voice to be in there because um, it's still got this association by people who haven't read a lot about it, but it is this sort of Tory thing, really. But I think because the Conservative government of the people who've been espousing it, therefore it's been seen as a Conservative thing, but it, but it isn't at all. Not at all. In fact, you could say it's a bit weird that people who are particularly Conservative are espousing it, because actually the roots um, are much more left-wing. Anyway, so that's why she got in there. And then Sonia Thompson is a primary head teacher in Birmingham, in a very deprived part of um, Birmingham. And I've heard her speak, and she's amazing. And the thing that I particularly find really inspiring about her is the quality and the level of challenge that she has in her school. So this is a very, very, very deprived area of Birmingham, a very ethnically diverse school. And her standards are so high. And I've heard her children speaking from year six children, and they were contrasting Nietzsche and Thomas Carlyle's um, conceptions of the heroic. Like this is mind blowing. This is mind blowingly ambitious. So I think again, sometimes uh, the criticism is that oh, this sort of knowledge-rich stuff is is not for kids like ours, and that our kids couldn't do that and shouldn't do that and it wouldn't be relevant. And here's somebody who's working with children who other people might write off as not being able or it's not for the likes of them. They wouldn't. It wouldn't be relevant to them. It would be too hard for them or. And she takes that by the horn, by the horns, and does this amazing work with her children. Um, then I've got Neil Armstrong. Armstrong, yes, man on the moon. Neil Armstrong, rather, and um, I know Neil quite well. And he uses this analogy of the box set, which I just think is a really, really useful and uh, analogy for people to know. So I wanted people to share that. Then I have Andy Percival who I know very well, and we've done lots of training for people um, on the curriculum for primary schools. So from a plan, so Neil and Andrew, very much more of a case study um, approach. And um, Andrew, I think Andy's really useful for primary schools to actually see it in practice. That was much more of a, here's how you do it. And I think then, of course, we had Dr. Morgan and Lee Padillo, and that is from a secondary perspective, talking about their how their English uh, curriculum developed over time and then finally as I've said Christine Council so um, that's how we got the night but you know I could have there's so many really good people out there and people I know well um, who I could have invited but I was only allowed to have so many people it was only allowed to be so so long but there's, there's all sorts of people I think oh gosh they'd have been really good they've got a lot to say well I wish I'd have asked them as well <clears throat> but in a way editing a book is a bit like um, curating a curriculum in that 
there's a finitude about it. You can't include everything. You have to make choices. And you have to not include some really good stuff and some really good people. I, I, I'll say that. John Hutchinson, I didn't ask him. And he's really good. He could have written brilliant stuff. But I had too many primary people already. So sorry, John. That's why you didn't make the cut. But he's fantastic. So he can be really good. And yet, just like in the curriculum, you might have something that's really fantastic and then and really worthwhile learning about. But but you can't include everything. No, no. Well, they might be into the uh, the research guide to the curriculum too, uh, which of course might be the the, the follow up uh, from yes, this. Yes. In, in terms and, of, and, go, sorry, and then John Hutchinson will go. No, no, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm going to go. John Hutchinson might say no. I'm just going to take part now. He didn't. I'm sure he wouldn't do that. I'm sure. I'm sure he. I'm sure he wouldn't. <laughs> so in terms of uh, shameless plugs for the podcast here so as I said to you in, in the question so uh, listeners can go back and listen to conversations with um, so I've had a conversation at length with Doug Lamov uh, I've also had conversations with and it was an interesting story really how I ended up speaking to Michael Young so that was through uh, Ruth who um, did a did a podcast with me very early on so thanks Ruth for supporting the podcast early on about powerful knowledge and we both said well I wonder if we could get uh, Michael Young who was due to speak at Research Ed Rugby uh, kind of the ill-fated speech at Research Ed Rugby where oh, he couldn't he couldn't that make it that that's yeah. right yeah so um, I was due to interview him yeah. with Jude on the day um, but it didn't actually transpire oh, right. anyway I mean Michael is fantastic and I couldn't believe it that he, he kind of followed it up with an email and said you know be very interested in doing this if you'd still be interested and, and, and like you I mean I was extremely nervous about speaking to you know because I've got all of Michael's books and I've had those for years and, and the, the idea of speaking to him and I've, I've relayed this story on a previous podcast that I felt like I'd really achieved something when he agreed with one of the points that I made during a podcast it was like it was a, a momentous moment so you can people can go back and, and kind of look at those but all so let's get in, into the book and, and go through those those chapters. So if we talk about the debate on curriculum and, and how you talk about how it's moved from a few years ago being focused on how to teach and now very much about what to teach. So how's that debate yeah, moved? Well, I mean, yeah, for most of my career, like what to teach wasn't really a, a question, really. You had the national, as I said, I started my teaching career with the national curriculum. So, like most people in the, in, in the profession, we don't know any difference. Like, here's the, well, certainly in England, here's the national curriculum. Get on with it. I was like, okay, we'll do that then. Um, so, yeah, the idea that you might dispute that, or it just wasn't, it just, I, I honestly didn't think about it for most of my career. If anyone I started going on Twitter and reading blogs and Reading, I think Stuart, uh, what's his name? Stuart Young was the uh, saying how important it was, and I was like, oh, I, I, I honestly hadn't thought about. I hadn't thought about that. This what we teach is is uh, more important than 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 how we teach, or, or certainly equally important. So I, I, yeah, that was just a real eye opener for me. Um, and, and then the more I read about it, the more I thought, you know what, he's right, he's really got a point here. And and um and really there's two sides, there's two different um streams feeding into this uh this debate. And the first one is um sort of the cognitive science side of things, which is talking about memory and how long term memory is important. So that's one side that's one sort of stream feeding into why curriculum is important and why what we teach is important 
And the second one is the 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 as I say, the side uh, embodied by uh, Michael Young and also Iggy Hirsch, although they have disagreements among themselves. So they're not like the same thing at all, but they both agree that, that knowledge is really important. And this idea of whether you call it cultural capital or cultural literacy, whatever you call it. Um, so, that, so both of those uh, streams sort of fertilise my thoughts. And... Yeah, after, after a lot of reading, I realised quite how important it was if learning is going to be uh, really meaningful. And, that, you know, that's the whole, brings us on to the whole generic skills versus knowledge debate um, and, and why generic skills aren't really a thing. So this would be, this would be the cognitive science side of things. It, well, yeah, I was just going to say for the, for the, for for listeners' um, benefit that we were going to follow on and talk about your experience of yeah. teaching generic skills. So you talk about that in the introduction yeah. to the book and a particular example of googling facts about the Aswan Dam. So uh, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and I mean, hopefully you're the same as me. I'm not being wise after the event. I mean, I, I do distinctly remember, and I teach science, um, being you know profoundly unsatisfied as you put it about that approach to teaching and feeling that I had so much more to give than giving out an iPad or a set of textbooks and saying, find something out from there. So tell us yeah. a little bit about your experience of that. Well, like my, my background is history, not history, primary, primary school teaching. And uh, in most primary school uh, classes uh, throughout the country, in, in, the, in the morning, there's very serious and high quality teaching about English and maths and this is all driven by the accountability regime. You know, we get you get held to account your in English and maths. I mean this is before the new framework of the framework obviously, but before that you lived or died by your English and maths results. And a bit before that it used to be science until whenever that stopped. So they were really important. But nobody ever, ever, ever said, come on, tell us about your geography, what's your music like? about your DT. They never did that. When inspectors came, they never looked at that at all. So guess what happened? That English and math, good. Geography, history, music, DT, not so much. And so, and, and if you if you were in a school that had any sort of challenges, obviously you poor, lots of training and development uh, into making sure your, your staff were really good at teaching English and math. That's so where you spent all your CPD time. And you know, geography, like twenty people in geography, was unheard of. Anyway, the school got to quite a good place, and we actually got to the place where we could actually afford to start looking at other subjects. And I remember doing some lesson observations in the afternoon, which of itself was unusual. I mean, this is a long time ago. And thinking, oh my gosh, I'm teaching in two different schools. I'm teaching in this really fantastic, brilliant school in the morning, but you know come the witching hour and come to the afternoon, the school's dreadful. <laughs> the, the quality of teaching was just not good. And so I was like, right, we've got to do something about that. Got to, got to change this. It's just not good enough. And I think it was just people didn't know what to do. It was a bit like, well, this is German timetable. So how can we pass the time in a vaguely, a vaguely sort of history flavoured sort of way or, or arty sort of way? So it's very, very much about finding some sort of activity that was history flavoured or geography flavoured or if it was DTO, make something, art, paint something. So no rigour in it or cohesion or anything at all. So from that, I did a bit of 
reading around and see what other people are doing. And I latched upon this curriculum. I won't name it, but those who know will know. Um, and they had a very much that what you should do is you should, children, you should have a big, big topic like dams, hydroelectric dams or chocolate or whatever. And then children should research, generate their own questions about it, do lots of research about it. So, you know, give them books and iPads and say, here you go. And then they'd find their own way of reporting that. So some might do a poster, some might do a PowerPoint, some might write an essay. Nobody ever chose to do an essay, let's be fair. Some might express, I know, hydroelectric dams in dance, whatever, do a song. And then at the end of the unit of work, they would present their fantastic uh, reports of what they'd found out. So teaching was very much a facilitator to sort of enable them to do this. There wouldn't actually be any teaching going, like, this is why we have dams, this is what hydroelectric power is, this is why we need it. None of that. They would, they would, they would magically find that all out for themselves. Which, for some children, with loads of prior knowledge, who already had loads and loads of prior knowledge about dams, electricity generation, pollution, why we even need to generate electricity, you know, what a dam is, why we need electricity all the time. If they already knew all that stuff, then they might have got excited about um, the idea, the possibility of hydroelectric generation. Because that's why I thought, oh, this is a great topic, because, you know, with all my assumptions and knowing about all those things, it's pollution, I thought, well, you know, green power, how fantastic. But I didn't know any of that. I was making massive assumptions about what they already knew. And lots of them, they genuinely didn't really know where electricity comes from. You know, it just comes out of the plug, really. So the idea that I found it exciting, to them it was dull and meaningless and, it, and, and, and difficult and hard and boring. So this thing that was meant to be this really exciting research project meant nothing to them. And so they, you know, they're Googling facts about the outcome down and making posters which was dull, 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 meaningless, not useful at all. And actually, before, and before they might have been making a couple of the outside down or something like that, which at least was fun. They probably didn't teach me very much, but at least was fun. So that was a bit, I really thought it was going to be fantastic. I mean, you know, the hydroelectric power option was probably the most, the least successful. But none of them, none of the topics did were really successful. And these were really good teachers, so it, it, but they weren't allowed to teach under this. And it's because the children who were teaching just didn't know enough to access, to access, to be able to make sense of anything you were asking them to do. No, so, and I mean, yes, yeah. it was profoundly unsatisfying. Well, yeah, and uh, I don't know whether I can do a tenuous link to what is going on at the moment in terms of the kind of home learning. Um, obviously, I, well, I, I bang on about this to listeners every week, but I'm trying to juggle the competing demands of being in school three days and then doing homeschooling for two. And, you know, you talk about profoundly unsatisfying. It's very difficult to do any kind of quality work where there's no feedback. It's very difficult where there's no uh, actual teaching. And, and we've kind of migrated towards the Oak Academy rather than the particular schoolwork that's being sent, yeah. certainly for year six. Um, because you know he wants to be taught and I can now also mirror that back in school because when we started with the vulnerable and key worker students it was very much right let's just get them back in school you know do something more softly softly with them but as it's gone through and, and time has kind of moved on 
they've been crying out to be taught. And actually the best days that they've had in school have been days when, you know, curriculum specialists have come in and delivered English lessons, math lessons, <clears throat> science lessons to the particular groups. So, you know, we're kind of seeing that now as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what, what we found was that actually children really like learning meaty stuff. As long as it's done delivered in a way that's interesting and makes sense to them, they love it. I mean, going back to, like I said, Sonia, Sonia's piece in, in the book, I mean, they do incredible stuff. You know, can you imagine going, I'm going to teach Nietzsche to year six? But she does it, and they really like it, and they are really proud of themselves being able to talk. And they know the stuff they're doing is brainy stuff, and they're so proud of themselves. I remember as well um, with music and teaching our children um, classical music and is it in the Hall of the Mountain King? I can never remember my Greek. Anyway, this piece of classical music and playing that to them. And, you know, I can imagine people going, oh, that's, you know, inner city children. They won't relate to that. It's not for them. We played them this piece of music and the class, year three class, at the end of it, they all stood up and cheered because they thought it was amazing. So I think it's this idea, this idea that um, that you know stuff has to be sort of relevant and to our children. Like it's, it's, they really like being challenged and learning interesting stuff that they know is hard, and that you know they can go home and impress the parents and go, yeah, well I know about Nietzsche, of course, his concept of the heroic. Why, why wouldn't they want to do that? Absolutely. And this is something that we discussed with uh, Professor Michael Young. And, and talking of Professor Michael Young, you talk about the three godfathers of the curriculum. So you've mentioned obviously Professor Michael Young, you've mentioned Hirsch and Daniel Willingham as well. And in the introduction, you talk about um, that, that Professor Michael Young's influence is perhaps the most marked. So could you summarise uh, your interpretation and application of Young's work um, on powerful knowledge? Okay. I, mean, I don't know if he's, I mean, he's most marked in the book. Yeah. Um, well, that's just how that's just how the book happened. I wouldn't say necessarily he's the most marked in the discourse. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think Daniel Willingham is also really strong. I think in England, probably Edie Hirsch is less so. Um, although, still there. So, uh, Professor Michael Young, the thing that he, I mean, you know, because we've had him on here, but for the, for the sake of, of the people listening here, that he, uh, not in the future school, he talks about um, three futures. And he talked uh, for, for, for schools. Um, and future one is, sort of the, is the sort of stereotypical, traditional um, type of schooling that probably none of us had. Maybe I did because I'm older, but probably lots of people didn't have because um, it, it moved on. But the, the stuff that's um, stereotypical, teacher at the front, passing on knowledge, an authority figure that can't be questioned, passing on knowledge that's of the establishment, you know, uh, the, the canon that's beyond dispute um, and can be seen as quite oppressive. Um, certainly it wouldn't have black history in it or anything like that. It would be, you know, the, 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 the curriculum as of, uh, that's been going on for, for decade after decade, centuries, um, and that there's no way that the, the children are allowed to, to question that or have any any sort of uh, interaction with that beyond being a passive receptor of it. Um, so we all know the critique of that. We all know why um, people don't like that and, and, and resist that. 
So then he said, well, you know, as a reaction against that, we have future two, which is where instead of this, this knowledge, people moved over to, well, let's do about skills, about communication, about creativity. Let's do all of those things instead. And, uh, and that seems on the face of it really empowering. And, you know, we're not going to learn other people's knowledge. We're going to own it ourselves. We're going to research it. It's all going to be about us in the driving seat and yeah it, that sounds really uh, really intuitively that sounds good and you know that's really what I was trying to do with my fun down stuff um but actually if we know about cognitive science I mean that's not why young comes to it but actually if you know about cognitive science it doesn't work because that's not how our brains work and actually the driving seat in in our in our, in our minds is our long-term memory and what's in there and that's what helps us think so actually, if you don't have knowledge in there, if you don't have powerful knowledge, then you're not going to get very far. And uh, what Young found, it was really, really, really sad story. So he went over to South Africa, post-apartheid, to try and help rebuild South Africa and have a better education system. And they tried to do this. They didn't want to have this, because obviously the education that the black children were having before was appalling and very much an apology for apartheid. So they obviously didn't want that. There was great suspicion of that, rightly so. So they tried to get rid of, rid of all of that and replace it with something that was more seen as more relevant and authentic, but completely failed. Because you can't just wish yourself into being able to think critically and, um, and understand the whole nature of democracy and uh, out of nowhere, you have to you have to have something to think with. So it failed miserably, and that's why why that he had this sort of change of heart and thought, you know what, there is such a thing as powerful knowledge. It's not just the he contrasts the knowledge of the powerful with powerful knowledge, and they're different. So knowledge of the powerful excludes powerful knowledge empowers, and it empowers, and it's a right. It's a rich cultural, uh, intellectual legacy of the whole world of the whole of humankind and it's it empowers us all and is the entitlement of all it shouldn't be kept just for the elite everybody's entitled to it and the more oppressed members of our society they're entitled to it too they're definitely entitled to it and they shouldn't be prevented from having access to this kind of knowledge that lets them see things in a new way. And he calls that future three. So what happens in a debate is people who espouse future two think, if you talk about knowledge, that you mean future one. In fact, we don't mean future one. We mean something new, future three, which is about this powerful knowledge that gives people the tools to think in new ways. And then it goes on to talk about um, the pitfalls of cognitive science. So um, there's quite some interesting points about that. So what kind of pitfalls did he outline for the use of cognitive science? Well, I, I, I think he misunderstands Daniel Hingham's work. Mm. And he's worried that, um, that it's just going to be about memory in terms of... It, most people use that word regurgitation, which slightly annoys me, but it's not about that. <laughs> But, but people are, are just going to learn facts and go take them as opposed to them having a chance to really understand what they're learning and really interact with it. But actually, that's, that's not correct. 
Um, and that Daniel William talks about how we go on a journey from shallow knowledge to deep knowledge. Uh, and Neil Armand in his book, uh, in his chapter in the book, uh, explains about this. So at first, when you first encounter something, you, you probably don't understand it that well. Because how can you? You've got, you haven't got very many points of reference. But you can't, you can't just say, oh, we'll have to understand it straight away. You have to go on a journey. And over time, you make that journey from the shallow knowledge to the deeper knowledge. And as it becomes deeper, then you understand more and you can travel it more. But I, I, I think uh, Michael Young doesn't realise that that's, that's what... Um, is going on in classrooms that have taken this on board and we do see it as a journey and the ultimate aim is that um, people really, really do understand and therefore can think critically with their knowledge, which is what Daniel Willingham is going on about. But I think that's, that's what Michael Young, he doesn't, he doesn't think that's what's going to happen. So that's his fear, if you like. And then into chapter two, and Ruth Ashby, who is very much a student of Michael Young's work, expands on his ideas and and references Basil Bernstein um, and looks at how new knowledge is generated and contested. So why does she argue that it's so important to understand school subjects? Right, well, this is why Ruth's work is fantastic, and you're quite right. It builds on Michael Young and Basil Bernstein's work. And so the idea, the reason why subjects are important and this is so important that we understand this, is that if, if we're not going to be completely relativist and just say, well, nobody, there's no way of ever knowing if anything's true, everyone's entitled to their belief, everything is ultimately contested, and there is no truth. So, like, if you're a science teacher and you want to talk about climate change and a child comes back and goes, no, my dad says it's, it's just, uh, a myth and you're making it up and you've got not and you've got and you say well science is da, 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 da. it's like yeah well that's your opinion and no actually understanding that there is something called truth but the truth is not I mean if you look at a future one version of truth it's like you know truth is up in the sky and it just is and you can't you can't disagree with it it just it just is and I'm telling you and therefore it's true sort of indoctrination type uh, view of truth. Whereas in future three, what we're saying is each discipline has its own rules of engagement, if you like, its own ways of saying, right, in science, we know that global warming is most likely to be true because of this, this and this, and this has been tested in this way. And there's you know scientific, scientific method and experimentation, and in 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 fact in science you can't really say things are true. You just say they haven't been falsified yet. And those you know peer review and the whole shebang about how in science, empirical testing, scientists decide that things are most likely to be to be true until disproven. So that there's a, and that students understand that it's not your opinion. It's not you standing up saying, "Well, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm probably a faintly lefty teacher, as most teachers are. I read the Guardian, and I've decided that I'm on the team global warming. So I'm not going to indoctrinate. That's not what's going on. Like we teach you about global warming because lots of scientists, like the vast majority of scientists, have done lots and lots of work on this, following various rules, following the evidence, and therefore 
it's really likely to be true. And that truth is something unyielding that you have to bow to. And you can't just go, well, I don't want it. I don't want that to be true because that's not my opinion. So that's how it is in science and in history. It works differently because you don't do experiments in history. In history, things are more up for grabs, but you still can't just believe absolutely anything. And historians look at different kinds of evidence and dispute and discuss and interpret. And then there will be things that you, you that you that are sort of established truths in history and so on and so forth. So in all the different subjects, all the different subjects have their own reasons and ways of establishing what is likely to be true. And if we if we want if we want students to understand that and not just think the whole world is a relativistic load of hot air and opinions and everyone can say whatever they like and there's no there's no way of ever deciding the truth of the matter or anything meaningful, then we have to follow the disciplines. So it's quite high stakes, really. Yeah, that, that absolutely is. Um, and in terms of another high stakes topic, and it's into the chapter with Aurora Reed, um, is the idea that there might be better knowledge um, cultural elitism? Well, you could say it's the idea that there isn't better knowledge, cultural elitism. I mean, you could, you could have it both ways. I mean, she would say, well, well, no, some things, some things are better, but it's not better in some sort of snobby, snobby way. So, I mean, Oxford used the idea of cultural capital, and you know, they've sort of misused Bourdieu's version of that. Because what Bourdieu was saying was, you know, if the cultural elite decide purple hats are a sign of being posh and ruling, then a purple hat mysteriously gets this uh, aura about it and then everyone wants one. And there's nothing particularly good about a purple hat. I'm just using purple hat as a, as a, as a, as a metaphor, obviously. You know, there's nothing intrinsically good about what they say. It just it carries, it signifies wealth and power. Um, so that's how we do use it. And obviously that's not what we mean. <laughs> that's not what we want to do. Uh, say when things are cultural capital. So, but there is an argument, and this is where the disciplines come in, that if um, nearly all scientists, so the overwhelming majority of scientists, agree that in X, Y, Z, then that is better knowledge than something that only two or three of them think, think, is, think is likely to be true. So that, but I mean, obviously, science is uh, maybe easier. So if you're talking about um, English, obviously, and which books are the best, that's always going to be contested. And that's fine. It doesn't matter that we never come to a definitive answer. But the to and fro of, of um, discussing and debating why, why is Shakespeare worth reading? Why is he so worth reading? Well, the thrust in the Academy of why why this book rather than this book and what the consensus is that's that's important and it's it's that history we're tapping into um and so yeah some things are some things do have more value than others and you know the reason why people have studied shakespeare for for many 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 centuries because it's rich and beautiful in a way that and now I've got to think of something really flippant now to compare it with. I don't know. I can't think of anything now. Jeffrey Archer. 
she's an extreme, she's an extreme um, parody of. But we can't always tell in the moment about the contemporary arts around us, whether they've got staying power or not. They may in the moment seem fantastic and not actually stand the test of time, or, or, or they may, we just don't know. But just because it's hard and just because the answer is never settled doesn't mean we can't say that some things are better than others. Now, and this is a this is a topic that I've returned to quite a lot. And in the new uh, Michaela book, um, I spoke to Pratesh Raichura about this, um, and he's got a chapter that is written in that particular book where he talks about uh, Stormzy and Mozart. So he's called his chapter mm. "Why Stormzy Could Never Replace Mozart," and it's it's very much along that idea that there is you know better knowledge and. You know, from from his background in terms of growing up in the catchment area of the school and then now going on to teach at the school, he thinks that if he hadn't been introduced to something outside of his own lived experience, then he would never have been able to to make those choices for himself. So actually, you know, it's it's the opposite of cultural elitism, really. Yeah, I mean, I go back to the year three class, listening to in the Hall of the Mountain King, and then cheering at the end because. They were thrilled by it. They were excited by it. And that's not the sort of music that any of them would listen, would listen to at home. They, and we expanded their knowledge and their range of what they're exposed to. And they found it thrilling. So, and that's what schools are for. Absolutely. So we must move in to talk about Christine Council. Now, uh, Christine Council has been on the podcast where uh, Jude Hunter had a, a conversation with her at one of the conferences, but she talks about the proximal role some content has in making the next bit of content understandable. So are teachers skilled curriculum makers and should teachers be skilled curriculum makers? Well, probably at the moment, not yet. Well, certainly lots of us. Not yet because it's not something we've been asked to do. And some people have got a much more intuitive feel for it than others, I think, and that's fine. And I quite like, is it in, um, I don't know, is it in South Korea or one of, one of the, um, I can't remember if it's Shanghai or Singapore. One of those two. Yeah, I think it's Singapore. They, yeah, it is. Yes, I'm settling on it. It's Singapore. Okay, so what they do is that when you're a teacher in the beginning of your career, you're just a teacher. And then after a few years, you get to specialise in one of three routes. So you can go into sort of administration, you can go into leadership, or you can go into being the curriculum maker, because it's much more centrally described. Um, so you have to earn your stripes through teaching and using the curriculum materials that other people have done. And then, if that's the sort of thing you want to go into, then you get to be one of the people who contribute uh, to developing new curriculum materials. And I think that's quite a good system, actually. But Obviously, we don't have that now. So what we need to do is to upskill ourselves so that we understand why we need to take uh, children on a journey and build build knowledge over time. So we get from this shallow knowledge to this deeper knowledge over time by becoming a curriculum curriculum maker. And uh, like I love this phrase, like the, the proximal the proximal function of knowledge. So if we go back to my Antoine Dam example, um, as I said. They couldn't really think, they weren't excited about the prospect of the Antoine Dam or any other hydroelectric dam. But the reason why is they didn't have the relevant proximal knowledge. They didn't know about that electricity, you know, that electricity has to come from somewhere, that it has to be generated, that there are different ways of generating it, that some ways of generating it cause more pollution than others. They probably know what pollution was really. 
Um, I didn't know that hydroelectric uh, power generation was a much cleaner way of doing it. Probably didn't know it damn well. So all of those bits of knowledge need to be built over time to take them on a journey and probably not all in the one lesson, probably over years. You know, probably if they were, these were children in year six, so probably if you wanted to do that, then right back in there in year one or two, learning about, hey, what would be like if all people have electricity? Just learning that, just turning all the devices off and realizing, gosh, lots of things we use rely on electricity. Um, you know, learning about pollution when they're a bit older, learning that electricity has to be generated from other sources of energy, all of those things. Um, over time so that they get to a place where it makes sense. Another example I use um, is that like a, a, a GCSE geography question on soil erosion. And, you know, what are the causes of soil erosion? Now, what you don't want is a year, the, the year 10, the poor year 10 geography teacher having to teach everything about all the factors of soil erosion from scratch with children or young people having absolutely no idea about them. So if you think about soil erosion, it's a bit of you know, soil particle size, different types of soil, what kind of animals have been grazing there, whether the people are nomadic or settled, um, rainfall, evaporation, the angle of the slope. Uh, I could go on and on. There's loads of different reasons as to what might cause uh, soil erosion and what can help prevent it. But you don't want the year 10 teacher to have to start right at the beginning with like you know what? There's different types of soil. You can get sandy soil and you can get clay soil. I mean, you want them to have learned that when they were four or three in nursery or reception. You want them to have had that practical experience and then over time have learned about evaporation, about animals, learned about settlement, irrigation, all of those things. So that when it comes to year 10, all of those bits of knowledge, they know all about that already. And then it's just a case of orchestrating it together. It's not trying to build it out of nowhere that makes sense yeah absolutely it makes sense and i mean the kind of the opposite side of the debate on that really is around rather than teachers as skilled curriculum makers is the use of scripted lessons so do you feel that scripted lessons undermine teachers feelings of autonomy and professionalism it depends how how scripted really um and if you're literally meant to, you know, repeat every word, then yes. If it's like, here's a baseline, like we've done the hard work for you, like we've done, we've done, we've given you these materials, but now you need to read them and really get on top of them and really understand them, really think about the questions and think about who am I going to ask that question to? Who am I going to ask that question to? Is there another question I want to add in there? So that you've got the time to become really familiar with um, whatever is the, the content you're teaching. And the questions are already there for you. So somebody else has already thought about that. And that doesn't mean you can't add in your own. But actually, that we don't have, we don't give it enough time to, to, to really have the brain space to do that. And this is what in, in the chapter in the book, Douglas Morse and Emily Badillo were saying, is that they, they never thought that's what they were going to do. They wanted to have these really wonderful, knowledge-rich discussions um, based on the books they were reading. So, for example, they wanted, oh, I can't remember which grade it was. I think probably the equivalent of our year seven or eight. 
to read uh, The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's set in Victorian London. And so one of the things you have to learn about is what her handsome cab is, for example. And so to um, to have the reference back to the is to understand that. But they thought, and then they, what they found out is that teachers just, they agreed with it. It wasn't that there was any opposition to it, but nobody had the time along the busy teaching day to to actually go and do the necessary research. So we sort of almost reluctantly in the end, they thought, well, let's get some people out there to, 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 to write some questions and then offer that to the teachers. So that they've got to start, you know, it, it's, they've got a basis, which they can then use in a flexible way to teach. But lots of the, the heavy lifting's already been done. And if you don't do that, What's the alternative? So the alternative is, if you don't give teachers anything and just expect them to go teach, whatever, then there'll be a few very hardworking people who probably don't have family commitments who will work all hours to develop their own materials completely from scratch. But what most people will do is instead of going to the lesson that's been really thoughtfully planned and had the luxury of really good time committed to it, They'll go to, if they're a primary school teacher, they'll go to TES resources. And if they're a primary school teacher, they'll go to something like Twinkle. <coughs> Excuse me. Or TES resources. And they'll use that. So they're still using somebody else's resources. They're still doing that. It's just, it's not so quality assured. So I think when people go, oh, autonomy. I mean, I sort of, I sort of get it because I'm the sort of person who won't surprise you. I really like planning carrying lessons and having wonderful ideas but I also don't mind the helping hand if some, it, like, because there's a lot to teach there's lots of different classes if you're a primary school teacher you've got lots of different subjects if you're a secondary school teacher the same subject but lots of different classes there's a lot to get through and to have somebody who's already thought of some of the ideas that you might want to cover thought of a good way of scaffolding it um, thought of some questions that's great and you can always just go mm, I'm going to do it slightly differently that's fine but it's 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 a it's a scaffold, not um, a straitjacket. No, definitely. and also if you you know you've got this, this balance between if you want autonomy, don't mind about workload. You know, <laughs> either you're going to spend all hours being creative, writing all these lessons, and then you're not going to have very much time of your own, or you're going to you're going to accept a bit of a helping hand, yeah. and then you'll have more time. No, definitely. I mean, it's a fantastic chapter and it's a fantastic book. And what I do like as well, Claire, is that something that that you've done that I have not seen in other books is that you have got a suggested route map through the book, depending on what you're looking for. Uh So obviously teachers are, you know, busy. I mean, obviously at the moment it's a little bit difficult with being in school, home learning, etc. But you've got a route map through. So, for example, if you're looking for practical guidance via the case studies, it tells you which ones to read, want to explore whose knowledge, which sections to read, and the and the same for the the theory aspect. So, just talk to us a little bit about that your thought process of that, and um, you know where you can direct listeners to to kind of see that through. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an idea I've copied not from the books, but some other books I've seen that have done uh, a similar a similar way. I mean, the book is varied. I mean, if you're if you're somebody you're reading this book and you don't know a lot about the curriculum yet, you know probably Christine Council's chapter 
it's not for you yet. You know, it certainly wouldn't be the first one I'd read, or even Ruth Ashby's, or even Aurora's, or Aurora's. You know, they're quite theoretical and they're brilliant, but it's again going back to proximal knowledge in a way. You know, maybe you need the building box first. So maybe you want something a little bit more, a little bit more practical, in case that is. So then, you know, Sully Thompson and Neil and Andrews and Doug Lamov and Emily Cadillo Chapter, they are probably better ways to orientate yourself. And then you might go, oh, okay, let's read a bit of a theory. But, and then, but also there's a route map through going, do you want to explore questions of whose knowledge? Because some people might go, oh, this curriculum stuff. Yeah, but what about whose knowledge? And that's a, that's a retort that um, it's almost like slapping down, ha-ha. So there, in your face, whose knowledge is it? It's like, do you know what? We have actually talked about that. It's, and I think people think that it's going back to a sort of future one type scenario where it's all it's all signed up and it's, it's sort of stitched down and it, it's so not about that. So that's a way of going, introducing people to the debate who might not know about that. So that's it, the, who's not and then there's about, And then if you're like, no, I really want to understand the theory, that's when you're going to get into your Michael Young, Ruth Ashby and Christian Council stuff because that's the really more theoretical side of things. And of course, you can read the whole lot. But I just thought for some, it's good to be able to orientate yourself. You don't have to read it in order. That's the beauty of a, of a compilation book like this. No, I couldn't agree more. It doesn't have one, doesn't have one single audience. Well, I mean, teachers. But you know what I mean? Like, teachers come from... You can self-differentiate, I suppose. Is that the right word? Yeah, absolutely. It's the right word, yeah. And, you know, in terms of um, a lot of online discourse at the moment about CPD and the fact that, you know, as we're going through and, and moving into what is becoming the new norm, teachers are, you know, naturally seeking out more CPD. And I think this is a really important book in that area because there's, there's quite a lot of, you know, weight to this. And it's really important. But like you said, if you're experienced in developing the curriculum or you, you, you've kind of looked in those areas, there's clear pathways to go through. If you're new to this, there's clear pathways to get yourself into the book. So I can't recommend the book highly enough. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. No, um, in terms of what you're going to be doing with it next, Claire. So are you, um, I mean, there's a lot of guests I've spoken to recently have been doing kind of online discussions about the book. I know you've done a couple of podcasts already and I will put signposts to those. So um, the, the Dynamic oh, Depths, for, exam for example, I watched that one yeah. we did with Daisy uh, Christodoulou as well. So could you just signpost yeah. listeners to where they can find out more about some of those other podcasts that you've been doing, about where they can get the book from and about maybe anything that you're going to be doing speaking-wise in the next few weeks and months, either virtually or in person? Okay, so yes, yeah, so there's a podcast with uh, Dynamic Deputies. So you're going to put a link in for that. Yeah, so that was recently. Of course, now I'm going, I can't remember. Well, I said I did somebody else as well because I got the bubbles up with you and I can't think who it was, but I did someone really recently who my brain was completely gone as to who that was. Uh, so could we just end by signposting listeners to where we can find out a little bit more about your class so I know that obviously you've done uh, some recent um, uh, podcasts so you've done podcasts with the Dynamic Deputies you've done some with Jamie as well and you've also going to be speaking about uh, you've been on Research Head Home for example so just tell us a little bit about more about where we can find out more about you the book and where you may be speaking soon either virtually or in person okay so the book is available from John Cat. So it's uh, the Research Head Guide to the Curriculum. There are also lots of other very good books in that series. So, yeah, John Cat, obviously you can get that from all the usual online 
bookshops or um, John Cat themselves. I've recently done the Researchers Home um, on building thinking power, so that's available from the Researchers Home uh, website. As as you said, I've just done a couple of pod- other podcasts. So I did one with uh, Jamie from So Teaching, and I did another one with the Dynamic Deputies. In terms of going off to do future speaking events, well, that's the kibosh has been put on that really, hasn't it? By by uh, this COVID nineteen basis, so I haven't I haven't got uh, anything in in the pipeline as as such at the moment coming up in the future. I just oh, I should point to a little advert for my own blog. So my own blog is Primary Timery, and uh, I've just put a blog up there just the other day, which very much carries on the themes I've been talking about today. Um, is about meaning and truth and meaning making and uh, why that's really important. Okay, so just a reminder for listeners, so the book is The Research Ed Guide to the Curriculum, which is an evidence-informed guide for teachers, part of the Research Ed series. Obviously, Claire has edited this. As we mentioned at the beginning, the series editor is Tom Bennett. And there's contributions, as we've talked about here, from Neil Almond, Andrew Percival, Douglas Marv and Emily Badillo, Sonia Thompson, Christine Council, Michael Young, Ruth Ashby and Aurora Reed. So it's a fantastic book. Um, hopefully, by the time we get to release this, we might have, because obviously we're working in partnership with John Cat, we might have some some potential discount codes for bulk buy so i know that uh, lots of lots of schools will be interested in getting this for lots of the teachers because the cpd at the moment with us being this current situation is very much for, up to individuals to do so i'm sure that schools will be interested in that it's been a pleasure to speak to you claire tonight thank you very much for your time really appreciate it and um uh, hopefully and this is another shameless plug so i know that you've done research at blackpool before mm-hmm. uh, and i was uh, you know I in, have. In, yeah, in, involved. yes i mean I, I do remember being extremely nervous as the co- you probably won't remember as the compare who was trying to uh, control the panel um that you were on with martley hayne amongst others if you remember all the panels blur into work. I'm sure, I'm sure. So. I'm sure. Well, yeah, I was that nervous. But anyway, so what I'm saying is hopefully as and when uh, we're allowed to do this again, you'll come and over to Blackpool again and, and do a research, Ed, with us in the future. Oh, that would be great, yes. Fantastic. Great. Well, great to speak to you again. Thank you, Claire. Really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank all right, you. then. Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA 1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers.